Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers, for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're incredibly excited to be joined by Temple Grandin, world-renowned animal behavior expert. Dr. Marty Becker, the founder of Fear Free, joins us for a conversation with Temple about her work with animals, why Fear Free is so important to animal mental and physical health, and some of the things she's learned on her journey. So Temple, I am so excited to have you here. You are a good friend of our family and actually someone uh, recently within the last couple of years asked me who my my celebrity hero is, the person I would most want to meet. And more than uh, Chris Pratt or any of my celebrity crushes, I said I wanted to meet Temple Grandin. And so you have just been someone that I have very much admired. And so it's such a joy to have you here today and to be able to talk with you and with my dad, Dr. Marty Becker, about Fear Free. And I know that there's a lot of connection between both of you and your mission for bettering the lives of pets. And I just can't wait to hear your fear-free insights today. And I also have my dog Otis joining us today too. So, you know, I want to add in there, this is, this is Marty Becker. Thanks, Mikkel, for that introduction. Temple, sometimes I have to pinch myself, uh, the friendship we've developed because I've known you for 20 years and we would say hi on the periphery of different meetings or you'd be up on the stage and I'd come up and say good luck or something, but never had the chance to have a lot of quiet time, a lot of intimate conversations. And it's almost like same time next year, this movie is in the past where we every year at VMX, we meet up and have a nice steak dinner and, and, uh, hopefully we'll get to ride back in that, uh, petty cab and seeing Johnny Cash on the way back to your hotel again. I look forward to those things. But when you call, it's really funny. When most people call, I let the phone screen it. So even if it's somebody I know, uh, and this could even be my daughter, Mikkel, I'll, I'll probably see what they have to say first. But when you call and it says Temple Granted, boy, I jump on that thing like a dog with a piece of steak. So uh, really enjoyed, enjoyed, I think, personally, but if I had to say honestly, professionally, because I have such a, a mission-driven thing to improve the emotional well-being of all animals, and then having you as not only somebody that has this, this different way of looking at things, but also an advocate has really, really helped us along that journey. And hopefully we're going to manifest that someday with somebody, uh, a boarded behaviorist, looking at the emotional well-being just of cattle as as an honor to you at Washington State University. So that's the end game. I have something with all these different animals. Well, great. I'm, one of the things I've always tried to do is um, find practical ways of improving things. But one of the things that helped me in my understand animals is I don't think in words. And when I first started my career, looking at what cattle were seeing when they got down in shoots, I didn't know that other people thought verbally. I thought everybody thought in pictures. And there's been a lot of discussion. I can't believe this discussion's going, still going on that somebody wouldn't think a dog is conscious. And I actually have a chapter in my new book, Visual Thinking, on animal consciousness. And I think some of this discussion gets down to verbal versus more sensory-based thinking. Because an animal lives in a sensory-based world. What's a dog smelling? 
And just recently, I looked at the brain scans from Cornell University, and it turns out that dogs have a gigantic internet trunk line of neurons going from the nose to the visual cortex. And I'm thinking, smell pictures? That's really trippy. I mean, I tried to imagine that. Now I'm going up the escalator at one of the vet shows, and I'm I was saying, well, if I put my nose down, I'm going to smell machinery grease in the escalator. Put my nose up here, I'll smell something from the trade show. And the dog's nose is so much more uh, sensitive. I'm going, smell pictures, really trippy. Dogs can do that. And that's some research from Cornell University on with a state-of-the-art brain scanning. You know, you know, I was told one time, I was writing a book called The Healing Power of Pets, with a New York Times reporter, and they were talking about how dogs could smell cancer. And uh, a, a famous uh, dermatologist in Orlando where melanomas are more common than Mickey Mouse ears, he was looking for a way, how do you find melanomas before they're visible to a dermatologist? And so what he did is he had this champion uh, giant schnauzer, a bomb sniffing dog named George. And he took, he worked with that handler and they would take samples of melanomas and put them in in uh, test tubes and so George could smell the melanoma then they went to samples that are the very earliest the dermatologist could see and he could smell them and finally they went to uh, had the dog smell areas where the, that was clean there was nothing anybody could see and he would alert on an area they would biopsy it and sure enough it had melanomas just starting. Well, you see, then the dog has to be trained on, you know, certain they've learned certain odors associated with um, with melanomas. And the other thing on dogs that have to smell different things, um, you know, people say, well, you got to have drive. But I think some people are breeding their dogs just like so hyper drive that how do they even have time to sniff something correctly? They're like so frantic. I, I've seen them on I, you know, scrabbling on smooth floor, just frantic. And and um, I worked one time, some people were training German shepherds to smell stuff, and they were getting them so hyped up. And then when they did it a little more calmly, the dog would actually take a, a more careful sniff and be more accurate because he wasn't like in a hyper frenzy. You know, this is the problem with genetics. You want some drive, but there's a point where you can overloaded. I see a dog now it's at one of the airports, so I don't know, quite a few years ago, frantic on a smooth uh, stone floor, scrabbling, absolutely frantic, pulling on the leash. Then another dog, he'd sniff stuff much more deliberately. I'm going to bet he would be more accurate. You want drive. You don't want a lazy dog, but you could go overboard. on. So Temple, this goes back to 2020. So here COVID hits and Thankfully for me, in one way, my world stopped because I was only home 52 days in 2019 because working on Fear Free, I was going to slow it down, but COVID really slowed it down. And I only took two trips after February, and one was to go with you to a, a we won't mention the name, but a companion animal practice in Fort Collins, Colorado. That's right. And yes, we had the time for to kind of, for lack of a better description, to hitchhike on your senses in a typical this is a very typical companion animal practice not the nicest i've seen not the worst i've seen i put it i put it in an upper say 40 percent though it's very nice well that's about where i would put it older building well maintained uh not the best design um 
And we just figured out a lot of simple things that they could do, not just tear up the place and totally remodel it, but something simple like in a waiting room, the floor was super slick, um, was in good condition, put some plastic runners down for the large dogs to walk on. That would be easy. I, I remember I remember actually walking in with you because I, I watched how you observe things. And so although I can't I can't see what you're seeing in these pictures, but you it's almost like there used to be a TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man and the Six Million Dollar Woman, and they'd have this make this sound like do 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 so they're analyzing everything, you know, and and you remarked, I think it might have been a trazo floor, like you'd see in an airport or a bank very nice and well ma well maintained to the human eye, but to you, it was shiny. And so for pets, it would appear that it was slick. Well, it was a skating rink. It was slick. And it was absolutely terrible floor. It was in good condition. And let's just put some plastic runners down. They're, they're cheap to buy, and, the, and especially the big dogs can walk on that. Now, I noticed at the airport, so there's been a lot of dogs coming in, and then Denver Airport's got a really slippery floor, and the little ones seem to be fine on that. And I don't only want, I see very few really big dogs. I just St. Bernard one time on a flight. He took up the whole bulkhead. He was on my plane. I didn't see how he walked on the floor. But the smaller dogs seem to not have, have the same problems. Temple, when you were talking about this smell, so, you know, I think a lot of us that work in veterinary medicine have just, we're so used to barking and dogs sliding and whining and and the, and the smells that it's you know it's it's background it's just like uh, background music and so when you think about smells you got me thinking of we use isopropyl alcohol usually to wet the skin down to get a vessel to rise up well yeah and then gotta get yeah for, before you give it a chance. yeah so you think of the you think of the animal the only time it smells isopropyl alcohol is when it's got something that is painful it certainly doesn't have anything at home with alcohol, with the positive association or at the veterinary yeah. clinic. So I, I think we, we don't realize whether it's fear pheromones, it's uh, the smell of uh, the, the cleanser we use to put on the otoscope that then's put in the ear with a sore well, ear. Well, I think it's how, it, you know, I'm asked all the time, should you, should you wear your white jacket? And it depends upon how the dog perceives it. Uh, if the first time they saw someone wearing a white jacket, it's just sliding all around on the table and being grabbed roughly, then they're going to so they often associate something like the white jacket with with bad. In fact, um, during COVID, I did a uh, online Zoom meeting. We had something like oh, we had over quite a few hundred people on this call, and the number one question that came up on a chat, and the chat was all messed up on Zoom. I could see it, but the people couldn't, so they kept asking more of the same question. And the number one question is, my dog is terrified of that. And I think these problems have gotten worse because a lot of dogs are living in the house. They're not exposed to enough stuff. They're afraid of, we didn't have thunderstorm phobias when I was a child. Because all the dogs are running around outside and there's more problems today with dogs just being afraid of stuff. They're not used to being touched by strange people. Uh, they're not used to going to so many different places. They're almost leading to shelter to life. And I think some of the stuff's gotten worse, actually. But what we need to be doing is training puppies that, yeah, it's okay to have your paw held and squeezed a little bit. We'll give you a treat for that. It's okay for strange people to touch you. It's okay to go to strange places. A, a question I have. So 
How impactful is that for a puppy or kitten to be exposed to that early on? Like for instance, in puppy classes that I've done for, gosh, for probably 12, 12 years or so now, I've done things like opening up uh, little packets of alcohol wipes. So they get yep. exposed to the smell and then giving them treats or they'll not to be afraid of it. Yeah. And then putting like scrubs or putting on, um, you know, even like a doctor's jacket, wearing something like that in front of the puppies and then, you know, doing the class in, the, in that kind of outfits. So that way they get hopefully a positive association with that. Can you talk about how those early positive experiences could be helpful in getting the pet used to the vet? What's, what's really important is that an animal's first experience with something new, like a vet clinic, for example, be a good first experience. I'll say the same thing to people that have horses, that um, their first experience with a trailer needs to be a good first experience, not bashing their head. Because if the first experience was something new, it's a really bad experience, they don't forget. And there's an old study that I reviewed in a paper I did on cattle on assessment of stress during handling and transport. Uh, and a scientist named Miller would take a rat and drop it into the middle of a radial maze. You know, it's sort of like the airport that has a central rotunda. Then you've got like four concourses going off. Well, what happened in this, he put the rat in there. And if it walked into the first uh, concourse and got chocolate chips, it'd go back in there again. So let's say it goes down the second concourse and it gets a giant shock. It will never go in that concourse again. But it goes down the third concourse, gets chocolate chips. And then it comes in again, gets a little tiny tingle shock. Then it only goes, well, those chips are good. Uh, he can actually learn to tolerate, you know, quite a lot of shocks to get those yummy chocolate chips. But if it's super bad, the first time they enter that lane, they will not go in there again. It was a scientist named Miller. And the references in this uh, paper I did back in 1997 on assessment of stress during handling and transport. And you've got to look at how is the animal perceiving this situation? I've trained cattle to walk in the squeeze suit and wait to have their head held. You know, other cattle, the first time they've been in there, they've had their head bashed in. They're not going to want to go back in there again. Well, I remember one of the things I was kind of horrified at is we walked in and they were on, um, uh, there was a dog asleep on the table, surgery table, and they were free text, what Marty calls pilotex, was forcing some large dog down. But then there were pets in the cages, dogs and cats both, watching three people jam a dog down. And that's not a very good thing for them to be watching. Yes, and they do know. They know that that's uh, not a very good interaction. And I just suggested that they put a curtain up. Now, obviously, if I designed the new clinic, I wouldn't I'd lay it out differently. But this was an example of a place where um, a very simple curtain would make a difference. In another room, the exam table shook as it went up and down. Animals don't like unsteady footing. Mikkel, if I could interject there, because I was watching Temple look, listen, smell, everything in Temple, there was all this noise that is so typical for a treatment area in a veterinary hospital. And the cages that were there with all these pets were there is, is typical. Probably 95% of them are built the same way. And there was a struggle with this dog to induce it for anesthesia. So they were having trouble getting the catheter in. The dog was struggling. There was three or four people around holding it, the pilotex restraint. And with the other dogs watching this. Watching, yeah. And there was dogs and cats. And when Temple drew my attention to it, we turned around and they're all in a defensive posture. They're all facing forward. It was like watching the gladiators. And so then you look at, okay, what what could you do? And Temple recommended, first of all, to block 
the visual part. So now they have, all they did was take a curtain like you'd have in a human emergency room and they draw it across there. And the other thing they started doing temple after that visit, if they had a pet that they were going to have, they knew they would have a struggle with, they didn't do it in that room where every all the other pets were watching. They would do it in the laundry room or they do oh, it. That's right. All the dogs watching that. I'm going, you've got to be kidding. And I, uh, they 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 understand that. I did kind of a little interesting experiment, very formal experiment with some bison one time. My student um, was out in the corrals with the bison over maybe two pens away from where the squeeze chute was. And I went over to the squeeze chute and I just banged the gates randomly. They didn't pay much attention to it. But then I stood in the squeeze chute and I grabbed the sides and I shook it like a struggling animal. And Jennifer, my student, immediately uh, the, so the animals just perked right up. When I gave that intent, random banging of gates, they ignored. But when I shook it like a struggling animal, I deliberately gave it intent, and they paid attention. You know, and I tell people, don't yell and scream at animals. That has intent. Now, there was a beeping monitor there. Well, there's lots of electronic stuff on computers that beeps. And they've probably heard that before. So that's less likely to be a problem. So part of the importance of Fear Free is not just for that specific pet, like that dog, for instance, that is going through that experience, like trying to improve that emotional experience for them so they aren't so afraid, but also it's the impact upon other animals in that area as well. So it's not only is that one pet being impacted by rough handling, but all the other animals are as well. Can you explain more about like that, that social part of fear and how it can be contagious? Well, I'm watching people grab a dog and force it down. They know what that is. Let's say those people are moving a desk. I don't think the animals would have reacted the same way. They do know the difference. Absolutely. And you know, you know the other thing, Mikkel, there started to be some raised voices. And I know when looking through the, the background stuff for this talk temple, like raised voices in humans are really a contagion for all those animals. So not only was there a struggle with the pet, but it was like, you know, be still. And there, there was, it, it was loud and, and uh, not horribly angry, but it was definitely, they just think it's normal. You know, the people working there don't think anything of it as they're, they're interacting. It's, but it has intent. They're very, very tuned into tone of voice. And the other thing I'll talk about in my book, Animals in Translation is don't pat an animal like this, stroke it. Make it feel like how the mother's tongue would be. And because this is the interpretation. One other thing that you said there that's starting to catch on in Fear Free Temple, you'll be so tickled to see in Fear Free how it's not just spread in the United States, but around the world is if there's going to be something that is, um, let's, let's just make this up. It's a dog that's got into porcupine quills. And those definitely wouldn't feel very no, good. If you had, you know, these dogs that try to kill a porcupine and have a muzzle full of quills, you really shouldn't do that in an exam room or an area where you want the pet to have a positive experience in the future. So there might be a room where you do things that are painful or an area and the person could actually dress differently. That's so right. m maybe not prison stripes, but you would not wear the same. This makes so much sense when you said yeah. it. You don't wear the same clothing and in the same place that you want them to have a positive experience in the future. So, it's you know, a lot of practices have a, a, a comfort room for euthanasia that's set up. They're literally in a new practice could be a room set aside that's just for things that are 
certainly to be a little traumatic or painful for pets. And that person would, the people would wear different clothing in there. Well, you have to look at how they're perceiving it. And the other thing is non-slip flooring. And they slide around on these tables. And one thing I learned years ago on the cattle, if you give them a non-slip floor, they calm right down. And uh, animals panic when they start slipping. It's a fear of falling. Don't can, can you explain that. the difference? When I was looking through this research temple, you talked about the fear of falling and slipping. Are those two different things? Well, slipping, if, if when you slip, like just uh, today is ice. And I came out of a restaurant today and I slipped on some ice by my car. I didn't go down. But I was very, very aware and walking really carefully. I don't want to fall down. And, and there's some... So when we put a pet up on exam room table or a treatment table or a tub to bathe them, not only is there a fear of falling because it's elevated, but it's a slippery surface. So they have the fear of slipping. So they have two, two things going wrong. Well, that's right. And the thing you can do is put a mat on it so they don't slip. And then I've heard some veterinarians say, well, I don't want to bother cleaning that mat. And I said, what you can do is have the owner bring in a mat from home, a bath mat with a rubber backing that the puppy or the dog is already accustomed to, put it on the table, the owner takes it home and you don't have to clean it. Can you talk a, a little bit about, about that fear of falling? I know that we may not think that much about it, but I've definitely seen dogs, like especially as you're talking like the bigger breeds, like a Great Pyrenees, for instance, is just trembling, terrified, doesn't want to move because of, of the fear of falling and those slick floors and the shiny floors. Like I, I remember you saying before that uh, fear is, it's a, the fear of falling is a very primal fear that's shared by animals. And it's probably, probably the most primal fear. I was looking at my notes in Temple. You, you talked about, it's one thing to feel uh, the, the fear of falling if it's a slippery surface, but what if the slippery surface was a trail and on the steep drop off on the other side? Well, that's going to be even scar scarier because the table is raised up. And you would be, if you know, and once the dog, well, that's the problem. He doesn't want to fall. <coughs> fear of falling, it's a primal fear. Then there's the old visual cliff test where you have a, a piece of glass that's over a steep drop-off and, where, where and the animal will not walk out on the glass. And the human baby also will not walk out over that because they that's fear of falling. Is is it uh, just out of curiosity? Is it that something that is that can be overcome? Um, and and I'm only asking for the reason of like when we do think about elevated surfaces or or the pet being up high for certain procedures, can we work to get them accustomed to that so it's not such a big deal if it happens? Well, you let's just put a mat on it so they don't slip. I don't know how many things I've fixed with cattle, putting a non-slip floor in, in shoots and in scales and other things. And they just calm right down. Let's put a mat on it uh, so they don't slip. Temple, what, what about a, a dog that goes to the groomer? So there's certain breeds that are groomed. And the groomer is like many veterinary hospitals now have adopted the fear-free practice of doing the exam on the floor, in the pet parent's lap, in the bottom half of the carrier, in your lap and not putting them up on the table, but a groomer is not going to groom on them. One of the things you can do if the dog's afraid of getting on that table, you go to some other place because animals can get place-specific memories. Yeah, Animal thinking is very, very specific. Uh, we did an experiment with horses. Rather, my student, Megan Corgan, 
and Sarah Matlock, one of the professors, uh, walked horses 15 times down past a children's play set that has a slide and a swing and walked them 15 times till they no longer stopped and no longer put the head up. Uh, and then when the play set was rotated, it became a new object. But think about it. If this book was a slide, it looks different this way than this way. And the object became a new object. And it was done at a walk. If that had been done at a gallop, the riders would have been dumped. See, we would, being thinking wise, we'd look at that and go, yeah, that's a kid's toy. But the horse doesn't know it's a kid's toy. Well, how this fits in veterinary medicine, Temple and I were in, in that companion animal practice, and the lift table started to go up with the dog. The dog immediately splayed out, and Temple said, stop. And she goes, you know, this dog just took a, just took a picture of this room. And, you know, the people in the white, the cabinets, the wall with the window, she said, I'd really recommend you put in the emotional medical record not to put the pet back in that room next time. And the owner of the practice and the architect and I looked at each other. Well, all the examiners looked exactly the same. So now you're seeing practices in Fear Free, whether they're repainting or remodeling or building new clinics, they purposely make each room look different. So they don't get that. What, what did you call it, tell, uh, Temple? Uh, Area specific? Well, animals, uh, they often will cue in to some specific thing. They might cue in on the table itself, which is probably going to be similar, but they also might cue into some other thing about the room. You know, on people, there'll be a type of hat maybe they were wearing. There was a horse I knew that was terrified of black cowboy hats. I talk about that horse in my book, um, Animals in Translation, and um, white cowboy hats were just fine. You see, it's sensory based, so it's much more specific. See, the thing is, you want to understand animals, you've got to get away from words. What is it sensing? And then I just learned about this visual thinking circuit that goes to the um, dog's smell system. I'm going, well, that's very trippy. Smell pictures? I've been trying to imagine that. Temple, you, your face is just rising with enthusiasm when you're talking about that smell picture. Something's really captured you on that one. Well, I did, and I'm... It was work done at Cornell, and they just showed a brain scan. It would have been that high-definition DTI imaging and a big circuit uh, going all the way back to the visual cortex and the primary areas. And uh, so what would happen if the dog smells, and he's got such sensitive smell, he can put a visual thing tag to different places where he, he's smelling. And I'm going... Boy, you actually be able to make a smell. That that practice something. that we went in 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 Fort Collins, Colorado. Do you have a, a photographic memory of the pictures you took, like in your mind? Well, not everything. Well, some things I remember the floor really well in the waiting room. Now, we originally we came in the back door because of COVID, so we were in the back exam room. But the thing I remember the most is that man handling that dog down and seeing the pets in the cages watching that and I was and that's normal in 99% of hospitals globally yes definitely well let's at least not have the other pets watch it if you know like and also you had cats and dog kennels right next to each other and we like to get the cats and dogs separated too people ask me if they're building a new shelter let's put cats and dogs at opposite ends of the building well you took some easy to do things that you know some fear-free things draw a curtain across yeah, that dog could have been induced in another part of the hospital. 
And so, and also uh, you talk a lot about, uh, just like with autistic children, don't go to drugs first. Let's try our other stuff first. But if things don't work, that dog could have been sedated in another area. So it wouldn't have been struggling because it was still conscious with, and you say sometimes the restraint is worse than the the needle prick. So here you had three or four people holding one dog down. Well, yeah, you get all the fear. You get all the fear and people forget fear can be a very strong stressor. Also, there's genetic interactions. You know, animals that have an excitable temperament are going to get more scared than animals with a, a calmer temperament. And I also like to talk about the Jack Pantscap emotional systems. You know, in all mammals' brains, you have fear, you have anger, you have separation distress. So when you have a dog left at home alone and you just chewed up the house, that's separation distress. Then you've got seek, like one Labrador retriever, all he wants to do is chase the ball. The other Labrador retriever could care less about the ball. That's just differences in kind of in a seek drive. And then you've got the sex drive. You've got mother young nurturing. And then you've got play, a Jack Penscap emotional system. So with Fear Free, would you be wanting to bring in more of those other drives? So going away from the fear and going towards... Well, let's say they start associating with the yummiest treats in the world then the dog's going to be happy going to the vet clinic, uh, not like cringing when you go down the road that goes to the vet clinic and all waggy tail and happy when he's going to the dog park. Amen. Because I think a lot of the, the stress, the, some of the restraint stuff is, is worse than the, you know, than the little tiny pinprick of a shot. One of the things that I learned from you was to, uh, is to have things associated that are really high value as far as them. So they typically don't get peanut butter home or slices of cheese or deli turkey or tuna. So no, they don't. Uh, those things could be associated really high value, not too novel, uh, associated with the veterinary clinic. Well, and they have to know, they have to sample that food before so they know it's really delicious. Because when I worked with the Denver Zoo with Nancy Earlback, and we trained antelopes to cooperate with their veterinary, uh, somebody said, well, let's just feed them pellets. I go, no, 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 no. We've got to use something that's a real treat, not just something that's potatoes. We actually had a dog temple. If you remember, we had spray cheese, we had peanut butter, we had whipped cream, we had turkey, and the dog actually liked a milk bone. It refused all of those. It was different taste, and, and we gave the antelopes the choices, and the Nyella chose yams, and the bongo antelope picked out spinach out of a smorgasbord of different food choices, which we thought that was kind of unique. So Temple, I have a question. So one of the things that you mentioned is that we need a variety of picture files for pets. And so, and that was related to the importance of looking at making the exam rooms look different from one another. So that way, if the pet does have a negative experience in one area or in one room, then they could have a note in their file and in the pet's emotional record, but hey, they had a negative experience here. Let's not go here. We should use a different exam room next time. And, so, and sometimes that might make a difference. It's, uh, but again, I want to start out with the puppies having good first experience. And so you would be be creating these these positive picture files or even smell files for these animals with things like alcohol, uh, you know, rubbing alcohol with that being paired with treats. So it's like that equals something good. That's right. Then they're not going to be better. Also getting the puppy used to having the paws kind of squeezed kind of hard. So nail trims are not warfare. And train in the vet when that palpates a different kind of feeling than when you're just petting them and just get them used to these things. And 
because most the, the fear sliding around and all of that, that's worse than most on a, you know, pinprick from a injection. I was just going to say temple. So as you're saying this, you've got, you've got fear of falling, the fear of slipping and then restraint. That is so typical. And you've got almost a perfect storm of something that's going to cause fear, anxiety, and stress. That is how we were trained as veterinarians or veterinary technicians. And so rather than trying to fix those things, you know, try to do something to overcome it, we just need to make sure that a pet feels like it's not going to fall, it's not going to slip, and that we don't use uh, harsh restraint. We do our gentle control. No, there was an interesting study that was done in the UK, and unfortunately the student never published it. But she went into the records of a cat clinic, and they looked at whether this cat was an indoor cat or an outdoor cat. And the cat that was most likely to scratch and bite was the indoor cat. And I think that's because uh, they get exposed to less things. They're afraid of more stuff because they've experienced less stuff. Like the cat might be seeing her first dog at a vet clinic. And the other thing that people forget is when an animal gets completely scared, I don't care if it's a cat, dog, or a horse, it takes 20 minutes to calm down. So let's say you've got a giant furball of a cat and shut the door in the exam room, leave it there for 20 minutes or half an hour. Just leave it there. Let it calm down. And they get instantly scared, but it takes about 20 minutes to calm down. Um, I've been saying that for years, and we had a really stupid thing that happened with a drone up at our equine center. Really dumb thing a news crew did, and we'll leave out who did it. But they basically terrified some of our horses with the drone. And I timed it, and it took 20 minutes to calm down. And then we finally got on them to ride them. Then this idiot takes the drone like a plane coming in for a landing and took it right at us. Uh, now, if you just take a drone up on the air, animals will just stare at it. But when it swoops across, you know, it's really dangerous and really stupid what they did. And I didn't see him initially get the horses terrified because I would have stopped it. But um, I time, by the time these horses were freaked out, they were all saddled up. They were completely unrideable. And it took 20 minutes before you could get on them that, to calm down. So with that, it's super important to give them time to calm down. And, and also, yeah. you were talking about the drone, if it was up in the air and it stayed there away from Well, them. if the drone just stays up in the air, that's not a problem. In fact, I got a, I can show you a magazine I've got in the next room of, where they took some pictures of sheep with a drone. I'll go get it. Uh, here is some sheep right here on the cover of this science of cover of nature, and you see them looking up? There's a drone up there. That's how they got that picture. And if it just if it just hovers, then you're fine. I had a situation where we landed, we were in Ireland, and we landed in a baseball field in a helicopter, and it came straight down, and the cattle in the next field just looked at it. But when we took off, he went off like this, and the cattle scattered. Because mm, it, it could be perceived as coming towards them versus being yeah coming towards mm -hmm. them but that sheep that's in that picture uh, i know they took that picture with a drone it's exactly what they do when a drone just hovers and you can bring it down just very gradual like that they just stare at it cattle at our experiment station did the same thing but you've got to be really careful because you could have a stampede and and what they news crew did with those horses was really dangerous and really 
stupid. So with different instruments or, or equipment that are used in the vet hospital, is that why it's really important to let the animal investigate? Well, yeah, and then you let them in. Well, it's the same thing, training a horse to put the saddle. Don't just take the saddle and chuck it on the horse. Give them a chance to look at it, see what it is. That it isn't going to hurt them. You see, surprise is scary. Sudden novelty is scary. You see, novelty is both scary and attractive. If the animal can look at it, you know, voluntarily, like that sheep that was looking at that drone, but when it comes right at them, then it, it's scary. Novelty is both scary and attractive. It's attractive when you can voluntarily approach and kind of keep a safe distance. It's scary when you shove it in their face. One behavior that we train puppies, kittens, adult dogs, adult cats, I use this with my horse, is a behavior called check. And it's teaching the animal to approach something and just touch it with their, their nose or some, some animals may prefer their paws and then they come back and get, and get a reward for it. So it takes that thing that's a little bit scary and new. That's right, something new. And with it staying in place rather than moving towards them, the animal has the choice to go investigate. They get rewarded. How, how could that type of behavior be helpful for building confidence in animals with things that are new? Well, then when they see a piece of equipment, they don't freak out over it. I had a student tell me uh, that um, her horse got afraid of this feed trough when it got stood up on its end. You see, it looked like something else. It's, again, very, very specific. I remember hearing this with horses, for instance. If they approach something and it's on on their right side that they're walking past it, it's going to look different to them than when they approach it the same direction, but they see it from their left side. Is is that... That's something that we're going to have to look at more. When we did the rotated object experiment, or other Megan Corgan and Sarah did it, I helped think up the experiment. Uh, the horses would have been... Um, using the right eye to, to see the play set that would go to the left brain. Uh, you got to remember the visual fields cross. Uh, it would be interesting to, you know, to see if there was a difference. There is some research that shows that, that things, they see the left eye, wait a minute, when I get mixed up, the left eye goes to the right brain. So that's the emotion. I've got to remember that. The visual fields cross. And that stuff that animals are kind of afraid of, they'll tend to use the left eye that goes to the right brain. And stuff they like, the right eye going to the left brain. And it's called laterality. And there's actually some research on that in cattle. Interesting. So, so have you noticed animals looking at something more with their left or their right, depending upon that emotion? Well, it depends. If it's something scary, they'll use the, you know, see, I'm coming, getting mixed up. I'm really dyslexic on some of this right-left stuff. I had a little problems with that when I was a kid. You know, because the horse would have been the right eye. Um yeah, going to left brain. That's the way the playset was set up. Um, but there is uh, things they're scared of. They tend to look at with the left eye. Good stuff. Look at it with the right eye going to the left brain. There's a whole bunch of stuff. You can go on to Google Scholar and type in cattle and laterality and and horses. There's, there's some stuff on that. Just an idea. Would it be helpful at all to introduce the animal to something on the side of their their vision that is associated with something good. So say that we're doing that check behavior, for instance, having the item positioned initially on the side of the pet's vision that is associated more with, with joy or, or good things with reward. Well, that would be a really, really good experiment that somebody could do. Uh, there are some differences in 
in cattle. And there's and I've actually looked at some of the research on that. Uh, which side they'll pass a person standing in an alley when they come out of the milking parlor. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, now it's also the kind of thing, I think a lot of this stuff, if an animal gets well enough trained, then I think it would override a lot of it. Temple, when I was going back through uh, the notes from your visit, one thing that really stuck out to me, if there was one thing that I would take away, yeah, we don't, we want to get rid of the pet's fear of, of falling or slipping. We want yep. to not use this harsh restraint. We want to, if we can, to if there's something that's going to be uncomfortable, to isolate it to a specific area that they're not going to yep. be back into and from other pets. But one of the things that you are really strong about is that puppy or kitten or that shelter pets, I don't care if it's 10 years old, their first visit to the veterinarian or the groomer or the boarding facilities would be 100% positive. And I, I looked at a quote there and read of the, the trail of fears in a normal practice is going to be replaced by the yellow brick road, which is, you know, a bunch of treats that are given all along the and way. They, and they, and um, when you go into the grooming salons, they all have rubber mat on the, on the floor of the table. So, and, and so that something like that, that kind of goes back to, as you were talking about that experiment with the, the different channels, the, uh, I believe it was a rat could go down and the one that, that was positive. Well, you kind of like, it's sort of like, you know, like certain airports, they got that big round concourses, like big round rotunda. And there's like four concourses going off. So let's say they go down the first concourse and it's all chocolate chips. Wonderful. They're going there. Let's say the second alley, they get blasted with a shock. First time they walk in, they will not go back in there again. But let's say the third alley, I, uh, is uh, eh, get a chocolate chip cookie, go in again, a little tiny tingle shock. Oh, those cookies were good, or these chocolate chips are good. And, and they can actually tolerate quite a, something quite nasty to get the chocolate chips if it's gradually introduced. But if it's that first initial horrible experience, scary, painful experience, they'll go, oh, the second uh, concourse is really terrible. I'm not going in there again. Absolutely. And so, so it's almost like hedging your bets and trying to build up that, that emotional bank account to make it positive for that pet. So you have that really good experience that probably builds that resiliency that if they ever come back and do have something that's a little uncomfortable, they can, they can better cope with it and come back. When we worked with our antelope, we found that the veterinarian who'd been shot them in the past with the dart gun, he could not work with the trained animals. It didn't matter what you dressed him up in. They, I think they could recognize his walking if we didn't have him talk, maybe a smell. But the person who had done, the really bad person who had shoved them up against the wall with a piece of plywood and had shot them with the dart gun could not work with our trained animals. You could bring strange people in off the street and they could work with them. And unfortunately, that's not in the paper because the bad guy is one of the authors on the paper. And I know a lot of veterinarians that work at zoos really had a hard time when all the animals hate their cots. Or a better thing to say is are afraid of them. Because I'll, I'll remember another zoo we went, and this lioness took one look at the veterinarian and went, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was very obvious she uh, was having a very bad reaction when she saw him. He, she didn't do that hiss at me. Temple, when you say that example of the antelope, when that person is shocked him, see, that's the dog or cat going to a companion animal practice that associates, maybe it had a, 
a severe laceration or had a really painful ear and they're trying to force the otoscope in there and the pet is struggling, uh, that's why you put in the emotional medical record about it may be a better, different person next time or, or a different place because they're, that amygdala, you can't, they can't go through therapy. I mean, you have to. We talk about, you know, like autistic kids freaking out when they go to the hospital and stuff. And, and when I had my tonsils out, I'm old enough to have had the dish strainer with the ether. Oh. And um, the nurse just held it up and go, look, it doesn't hurt me and put it on me. And it was fine. She just did that very, very casually. I was six years old. I remember it really well. Temple, you talked one time, you, you worked with the airline industry on animals that were being shipped and losses. And one thing I thought was interesting, the first, if they were going to have uh, injuries or death, it was almost always the second or third leg of the flight, not the first leg of the flight. That's what I found. I had two sources of information on that. I had the DOT, Department of Transportation, open records. I also have a big binder down in the basement. I can't tell you where I got it from. But it was it comes from a major airline, and it contains all the cases where the dog didn't die, but it was very bad. Lots of bloody mouths and bloody paws, all the bad things happening. There were the stupid things like sick puppies that shipped, uh, recently spayed or something like that shipped. But I went through both sets of records, and I looked at every single one. And I was the only person on that committee that brought up the fear. Bloody mouths and bloody paws that dog is terrified trying to break out of that container. That's fear. And nobody else on that committee looked at it. They were more concerned about whether you had a special van to take it out there. Well, that's nice luxury. I, I'm not that worried about the baggage cart. But now I'm seeing this poor dog after we did this. I was sitting in a window seat. At the, we were at the gate. And I got a perfect view of the luggage conveyor. And I took a dog crate off the baggage cart. It was fine. It was a you know, mild weather. And they put it on the end of that conveyor. And they and three different scanners checked the tag to make sure it was right. That dog got halfway up that conveyor. He's going around like this. He knew where it was going. You see, they were, and even on the DOT records, there were quite a few that died on the second flight. And there was a connecting flight. That dog knew he was going in a black hole of terror. And I, I remember that very, very well. And I, so what can we do to make this less scary? Uh, well, I'd rather have them in a the cabin, to be perfectly honest. And for the most part, I've, dogs have been a non-issue on planes, and I've seen plenty of them. But let's get him totally used to his crate. This is not the time to shove a dog in a crate, and he's never been in a crate before. They maybe get him used to um, spending a long time in, in the crate alone, maybe in the dark bathroom or something you know, but they, this was fear. And, and nobody else looked at the fear factor on, on some of these bad things that happened on these trips. What I'm thinking too, could it be the, you know, when you look at those ramps that go up into the belly of the plane or at quite a steep angle. I don't think that's the problem. I, I think it's just, he knew where he was going. You don't think they had a fear of falling? Well, he's inside mm -hmm. the crate. See, that's more like, like, like I don't have a fear of falling when I'm in an airplane and I'm looking down 35,000 feet, but I have a fear of falling if I get too edge too close to the edge of a roof. That that makes that they, makes sense. They, they, I'm amazed at some of the. I watched an airline do a really dumb thing one time. Uh, they had three horses on a pallet thing, and I lifted it up uh, with a view of the airport, and uh, everything was okay. 
You see, there's a thing where if you feel well enough contained. Now, when horses travel, they have their grooms with them. They're not alone. They're not alone. They have special stalls they put them in. And they're very tight, little, small stalls. And you'll need to get the horses used to that. This brings up another thing that I saw with racehorses. People didn't think when they were selling the racehorses to acclimate them to the auctioneer sound. Because that was making $500,000 horses pooing uh, cow pies diarrhea. And they also hadn't trained the horse to tolerate a strange person holding their lead rope. And when the, they hand the lead rope off to a big strong guy so the horse couldn't jump into the audience during the sale. And just when they handed the lead rope over and the other groom went around the corner, the horse went into big shriekers. And nobody thought about, maybe let's teach the horse. It's okay to have strange people hold your lead rope. That's just fine. See, all of those things are applicable to a veterinary hospital. When you talk about that first time, first time they come back in is if they're going to go back into be groomed sometime or going to go back into a kennel, they go through there and have these positive experiences along the way. And, and Temple, I want to ask you a question. My sister's a physician, and we talked about this. When people go to her, they know they're, uh, they're going there to get help, so... You know, so her her things hurt with help. And then the veterinary side, uh, the patient not only doesn't know they're being helped, but they feel like they're going to be hurt. So <laughs> we're there to help them, but they think we're going to hurt them. Well, you see, the dog doesn't know. Dogs don't know why you do it. See, that's that's the problem. Well, I get asked all the time about autistic kids at the hospital. Well, most kids, they think electronics are interesting. And when I was a senior in high school, I was in a very scary airplane landing, and I became terrified of airplanes. And then I got the ride in the cockpit of a big airplane with a load of heifers. You see, you got to make it interesting. Then I found out later on that the heifer pee was coming out the bottom of the airplane. That wasn't so great. But I make it interesting. Kids love electronics. Let's learn about some of how some of the monitors work. Like maybe visit the websites of the companies that make the monitors and say, well, you know, we can, we can take pictures inside your body and you can have a copy of the pictures. And I think a lot of the monitoring equipment can be made interesting. Now, obviously, there's nothing interesting about getting an injection or an IV. That, but the monitoring, a lot of the equipment is interesting. And if you made it interesting, that would help, I think, with a lot of the fear. You know, when this is what the heart rate monitor does. It's like your Apple Watch, except it's a big fancy one. And just explain it that way. And that that is sort of like some of the training that's done with animals, too, when I think about it that way. So where you are really evoking that curiosity side where the animal gets to approach it, they get to, you know, explore, have that seeking side versus, you know, where it's just they're left on their own and, and they are in that kind of fear mode. No, and it's, uh, yeah, I know you are going to hurt. I remember when I woke up, I was having a tonsillectomy. Yeah, it hurt, and I had another major surgery. And, yeah, that uh, was real sore when I woke up. You know, a good example of this, Temple, when we were down there visiting his companion animal practice, we were looking at a syringe. So a syringe is used for a blood draw, an injection. Yeah. Uh, and so they're painful, and so the association and with... None of those things are fine. I know, fun, so... What Temple suggested, and I can now tell you this has been done literally thousands of times, Temple, 
is now when a pet comes in the first time and has a positive visit, they're sent home with a syringe. And that syringe is paired with tasty treats, with play, with massage. And so now that syringe, they see that syringe in the veterinary hospital. It's like, oh boy, okay, what am I going to get from that? We turned it around and I don't know how, well, if there was something in your past that you thought of that. Well, and the things with the new, you know, I can remember the old reusable, horrible glass syringes. They hurt a lot, too. And they did with me what you should not do. They said, look out the window at the pretty bird feeder. And they stuck one of those things into me, and I hit the ceiling. <laughs> I um, remember glass syringes, too. Oh, yeah, they were the awful things. And, and uh, but you make something, you know, what you know is left scary. And and kids love electronics, so let's just make all the monitors interesting. They are interesting. We'll give you tracings of your heart and give you printouts of that stuff. As you were saying that, I was thinking about different equipment in the vet hospital, whether it's the scale, it's the it, you know radiographs, whatever it might be. Like maybe that's where we have different treats that are pre-placed in different areas for them to explore, like a little treat trail on the floor. Maybe there's some lickable treat here that they can have. So would that be a way to engage them? Well, the other thing is, let's have a non-slip mat on the scale. We've uh, this we found this with cattle too. Oh, man, single animal scale. And, the way in the um, show steers in there, and they just, even though it's tame show steers, just freaking out because they slip on the floor. You know, give them a non slip floor. That's another thing to do with something like the uh, scale. See, a lot of the equipment make computer noises, and a lot of animals get, you know, get that at home. So, one of the things we do after Temple's visit was encourage practices to record just a basic. Uh, soundtrack of what typical sounds sound like in treatment area. And that's something that they could, uh, could be sent to them in an MP3 file or put on the website so they can play that at home. And now with stethoscopes and otoscopes, uh, to do exactly what you say to Mikkel, is pair a very tasty treat. So let them sniff the uh, otoscope, give them a treat, flip the flap of the ear, give them a treat, insert it in the ear treat, so it's, it's all positive associations with the otoscope. Why do you think that so many people say that they, they handle their dog's paws or their cat's paws, but the animal freaks out when it comes to nail trims? Like, is it just a way different picture when that's done? Well, you've got to kind of like squeeze the paw, like in the cats, you got to squeeze the paw a little bit. That's not just touching it. You just got to kind of mimic that kind of touch and, and pair that with a treat and train that if the puppy doesn't jerk his foot away, he gets a treat. And then you've got to make sure that um, uh, you give that reward really quickly. Otherwise, the animal won't make the association. So when you think of like picture files with pets, say that you have worked up and you're able to do nail trims with your dog and you have the non-slip surface, you are giving them treats for staying in place, but you flub up one day and the nail is pinched because the trimmers aren't sharp enough, or maybe the quick is cut into. So there is a negative experience that occurs. Would it be better in that situation to 
start over somewhere else in a different area or to go ahead and, and rebuild there? Well, it depends upon it. See, the, the thing is, if you get them trained, it's sort of like the rat that went down the third alleyway and uh, had, you know, he'd, he'd tolerate quite a lot of shocks to get the chocolate chips. And it was just a little pinch. They just tolerate it and you can just, you know, keep going. Uh, and the other big thing is that dogs don't get enough to do. I went to a great dog park um, that um, I had um, all these uh, tennis balls they provided, dogs playing with each other, kids playing, everybody off their devices, and both the kids and the dogs were having a really, really good time. And the people could have a cocktail. They didn't allow any food in there, no doggy food and no people food because they want to get rid of the resource guarding. And the park provided the tennis balls, so you don't get resource guarding over their toys, sort of thing. And then I asked the owner, um, he had to admit that there were 10% of dogs they had to kick out of there because they were too aggressive, including his own rescue dog. Uh, they have to enforce those rules. But I never saw so many people having and animals having such a great time in this place. And, and But it's something that to make it work, it has to be extremely well managed. But it can deteriorate if it's not managed right. And if they have staff there, they'll pick up the dog poo. But if maybe five dogs kind of got together too much, oh, they just get them doing other things. Let's not have a, too many dogs all crowded together. When you think of fear in pets and, you know, say that they do have a, a fear memory or a fear picture in their mind of a certain situation, and those are, as you mentioned, like often very specific, do pets ever have a fear that is hard to trace? And I guess my, my question comes from my own personal experience through EMDR therapy work, which I realize the, now years later, almost 37, that my phobia of airplanes that I had for years actually went back to my grandpa committing suicide and some anxiety from that that ended up translating into this, this crazy anxiety with flying. And even though they weren't related necessarily, they were related in my mind. And so now it's like, I look back, I'm like, wow, that's where that came from. I, it wasn't even a negative experience with the plane. Like, did animals have anything like that that happens for them? Well, you can get something where a traumatic experience ramps up the reactivity of the nervous system when you have that negative experience. Then some little tiny thing probably happened on a plane, which normally wouldn't have wouldn't have caused anything. I was in an extremely scary emergency landing. And but I also had a really ramped up um, nervous system, you know, because of a, a anxiety that was uh, which has been treated with antidepressants for years you know now i make them interesting and you helped me before with with otis right here who we were his fifth home by the time he was seven months of age and one thing that you encouraged me to do was to get him out there more because uh, from his histories that you thought that maybe it sounded like he had probably spent a lot of time in a crate for most of his life before we got him and hadn't had a lot of exposure so like, like for, for dogs um, like him, you know, we may say that, that they're reactive. I think it was a word that I use. And you said, Hey, I want you to think in, think about this visually with me, think about this visually with Otis. And 
so that that really gave me a different picture in my mind of what I was really aiming to do, which was to build some really positive, happy pictures for him with different life experiences and really looking at his behavior, not labeling it, but really looking at it and trying to, to build on those positive things for him. Like, can, can you explain a little bit about that? Well, I think as I said before, animals lead to shelter life today and they're just afraid of more stuff. You know, this goes back to the indoor cat biting and scratching more at a vet clinic than an outdoor cat because that indoor cat may have never seen a dog. Imagine how frightening that would be. Um, you know, we need to get, you know, that's why when they train service dogs, they take them everywhere. So they get used to all different kinds of places. And they see now, like we have very strict leash laws. Uh, uh, when I was, a, you can't uh, just let the dogs run around. I see dogs get yanked away from the trees they want to smell. They don't get a chance to get enough dog social life. And so we have more behavior problems, more houses chewed up, more bites, because they aren't experiencing enough. How do you expose them to something in a way that doesn't flood them or push them over the edge where they do have that fear reaction, but you can make it a positive experience for them? Well, let's just start kind of gradually. I'm not going to take them to a football game as the first thing, or the underground subway station that's a giant racket. You know, let's just try uh, walking around the neighborhood, have some, you know, strange people touch them. Then you might go on a quiet, um, if it's training a service dog, you can go in a store, something that's not too, you know, gradually get them used to more things. You don't want to just uh, shove them in a ton of chaotic novelty. It's the same way on teaching autistic kids to tolerate more stuff. You do it gradually. No, there's a tendency to the we have more behavior problems now than we've ever had because and the kids I'm seeing autistic kids get overprotected they don't know how to go shopping and it's just all kinds of stuff like that. Mikhail, you've been to a couple of fear-free hospitals in Spokane, Washington, where you live, and I'm thinking of others I've been to where they have treat little like gumball machines inside. Usually most clinics have two double doors. So if a pet gets off, it can't get out the door. So you've got a little airspace there. Uh, it's mainly, mainly designed not so much for air, but just to keep pets not from getting loose, but they have gumball machines with dog and cat treats. And then they have another one further inside. And so people can just swing by, or if it's urban, they walk by, they go in there and that pet thinks that vet clinic has treats. They've changed it around where the pet actually wants to go in because it thinks it's going to get a treat. Wants to go. That's right. Temple, I got a question. I got a question for you. I got two questions actually. The first question: You've been so kind in to lend your your gifts to looking at how we can make life better for companion animals. Going whether it's the the veterinarian or the or grooming or whatever, how would you describe fear free to somebody that had never even heard the term or, or was going to go to a place that embraced fear free principles? Well, I would just say that, you know, a lot of pets are afraid of going to the vet clinic, but also afraid of going to a lot of new places. And if you associate new places with treats and with positive things, then the dog is not going to be afraid. And and there'll be you won't have to do harsh things like just shove a dog down or or um, you want to make things like going to the vet a pleasant experience. Now there are some things they got to do that hurt, 
but sometimes the fear of being handled roughly or slipping on the floor, that's certainly worse than a little pin prick from a needle. You're going to leave a legacy. You've, you've literally changed the way uh, the cattle industry and a lot of other things. You're having a dramatic impact on companion animal medicine. So what do you hope to see before before you pass this? Because you're, you're really big about supporting PhD students and a lot of stuff you never talk about that I happen to know about. Well, and I also want to support all students. And um, I've talked to veterinary student clubs, talked to 4-H clubs, FFA groups. And I want to, also want to encourage the kids who think differently. I've done a lot of talks with big corporations about different kinds of thinking in my new book on visual thinking. Um, and I want to see these kids that think differently. Some of them will be super good with animals. See, this is another thing I'm concerned about is all the math requirements for things like a veterinary technician degree or for even for a vet degree. Do you really need calculus to be a vet? Because a lot of the people, they'll be the best with animals. The one people like me, we don't we have trouble with algebra. It's too abstract for me to understand, and I'm worried that a lot of the potentially best students are getting screened out. Yeah, you need to know your drug dosing. That's you got to do in your sleep and do it accurately. But all this abstract math, I'm I don't know any veterinarian that uses calculus for anything. Now I think the problem is is some of the people that think mathematically think you have to have that for logical thinking but that's not how i think temple tell us about your latest book well that's my latest book right here visual thinking and i talk about different kinds of thinking object visualizers like me good at animals mechanical equipment and art and then you have the more mathematical minds think chemists computer programmers um and engineers and then you have people that think verbally and I didn't even know that a lot of people thought verbally until I was in my 30s. But it was obvious to me when I first started to look at what cattle were seeing when they got down in the chutes. And I found in my work with um, building big meat plants that my kind of mind often worked in the shop, barely graduated from high school, were inventing all kinds of complicated equipment complicated mechanical equipment and the degreed engineers would do the boilers refrigeration make sure the roof doesn't collapse now here's an example of my kind of mind inventing something um, i went to an avma committee meeting that was um, held in an anesthesiologist um, association and they had a little museum you know what the first anesthesia machine was made out of a gas meter a home gas meter like the kind that used to be in my childhood house gray square box thing yeah, that's the clever engineering department to think up how the way a gas meter works, that that could be modified as an anesthesia machine. And I saw that at a museum and I'm going, that was not done by the mathematician. And I also found out like at our vet clinic that they have a guy that works with the horses. He fixes all the anesthesia machines. You see, you need the people that are my kind of mind um, I call it the clever engineering department. And they're also the people that really understand the animals. You see, because I, I, I don't think in words. And we need all the different kinds of minds. I'm very concerned about skill shortages right now. Um, there's a lot of industrial equipment we're not manufacturing. This doesn't have anything to do with the vet clinic, but um, I, some of the you know mechanical devices you use... Um, 
that usually doesn't come out as a degreed engineer, like a clever new tool or something like that. So when you think of uh, different ways that people think or animals might think, do animals always think in pictures, do you, do you feel? Well, uh, animals are going to be sensory because the dog's also going to think in smells. And they have a super sensitive nose that's way beyond any nose we have. So it's sensory. But when they get afraid of stuff from a distance, it's often visual. They see the white jacket. This is stuff they can see at a distance. But it's sensory. What are they hearing, smelling, seeing? It's a sensory-based world. And there's another book called The Immense World. It's on animal sense organs, like the octopus lives in a touch world, for example. Dog is smell is such a big part of their world. It's sensory based. It's not word based. But the vision, the only reason I was emphasizing the visual is stuff they're afraid of, especially if they see it from a distance. Tends to be visual. So, how would you describe the difference between a traditional approach of care versus a fear free approach, and and why is it important to look at someone taking a fear free approach or finding a fear free that clinic? Well, you want the dog to associate the veterinary clinic and medical care with something positive because there's a lot of dogs that are terrified of the vet. And I think it's gotten worse in some cases because the dogs are leading to shelter to life. Like just don't get out, do enough stuff. It's just like the study that was done, the student did over in the UK where the indoor cats were more likely to bite and scratch than the outdoor cats. Outdoor cats have been exposed to more different things. So when we think of ways that we can help our pets to feel more comfortable with different care that we do for them at home, say it's giving a, an injection to a diabetic cat, or it's having to do a paw soak for a dog that has an infected paw, how do we make that less stressful for them and make it more fear-free? Well, like on the injections, we talked before about sending a puppy home with an empty syringe, so associate that empty syringe with treats and, and instead of being held down sliding all around on a table which is really scary for the puppy uh, yeah there are things you're going to do that hurts what the original Miller rat experiment showed that the rat would be willing to go down a corridor if the treats are good enough even if something did hurt just a little bit but the one where he had a horrible big shock the first time he went in the new corridor he'd never go in there again well, Temple, thank you so much for meeting with us today. Thank you for your friendship to our family and for all the ways that you are helping us to create a fear-free approach for pets in all aspects of their life. And is is there anything else that that you have for us? No, well, I think we've pretty I think we've pretty well covered it. Well, I, I I so appreciate it. And if I can ask you one last question, as my dad did himself, as I was watching the movie Temple last night and also reflecting back on some of the the notes of different things that you've said. Uh, one thing that you said, for instance, is that animals don't understand death, they understand fear. And in the movie, it, there were different times when you know you were really kind of coming to terms with the the meaning of of life versus death and like how you could have a cow there that you can, you know, it could be a living being one moment and the next moment is a slab of meat. Like how have you kind of, like how has your experience of life and death like transformed through the years? Like what, what does that mean to you? Well, we've got to give the animal a, a life worth living when they're alive. 
And I don't think some dogs have a very good life. There's too many dogs spending almost 24, uh, you know, uh, 23 hours a day locked up in the crate. That's supermax prison for dogs. That's not a life worth living. Uh, we've got to give pets and farm animals a life that's worth living. People forget nature's very harsh. There's nothing nice about a hyena ripping out the uh, uh, an antelope's guts and eating the guts while the antelope's still alive. That's that's real nasty. Um, and we've got to give all these animals a life worth living. They need to have a chance to experience some positive emotions. That's one of the things. I really like that, and I, I like in in the movie where it talks about or how you have talked about that, that meaning of respect. So for, you know, whether it's an animal that we're living with and that we love or those animals that we're, we are raising for slaughter, for food production, that meaning of respect and respecting the animal and giving them the best life possible. Well, we've got to give them a good life. And sometimes we're, we're sheltering them so much they don't get enough to experience enough stuff. I think of the dogs that we that were in our neighborhood as kids. There was one that was a ball chaser. All this dog wanted to do was chase balls. If that dog had been locked up in the house where she lived, she would have chewed the house down. She would have been a miserable dog. Um, and some animals, there's another lab that was real lazy. He could care less about the ball. Um, we've got to give animals a life worth living. I'm also very concerned about some of the breeding problems with animals. You know, breeding problems in, in uh, you know, pugs and bulldogs. Uh, racehorses just break their legs when they're running. Just, you know, really bad things. I'm breeding for extreme traits. I don't care if it's a production trait, like for milk or, or meat, or it's an appearance trait or a performance trait. You overselect for any single trait, you're going to really mess up your animal. And I've got problems with some of the problems that we've been breeding with in animals. Big problem with that. That makes sense. That, that does it puts them in a compromised position where they can't have that life worth living, where there's a lot more suffering in those situations. Well, the thing is, in animal welfare, the trend now is preventing suffering is not sufficient. We also have to have the animal have a chance to have positive emotions and have a life worth living. That's kind of the trends now in most animal welfare science. Thank you so much, Temple, for joining us here today. Thank you for all of your work with Fear Free on our advisory group. And just thank you for your friendship to our family. It's been great to be here and I'll see you at the VMX meeting. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any of our upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number 3, the word 1, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music. <laughs>